Good evening, everybody. It's good to see those of you who are here, even though you are pretty far away. Seems really different. Uh, so tonight's text, which is Mark 12, 28 through 44, continues from last week's text with Jesus in the temple teaching and answering questions. Previous questioners, the Herodians, Pharisees, and Sadducees, have tried to trap Jesus in what he says, but have been unsuccessful. In fact, Jesus has answered with such wisdom that one of the scribes decides to ask him a question. This scribe was a scholar of scripture, probably a Pharisee, and although we weren't there and can't see his body language or hear his tone of voice, it seems that this scribe was open to hearing Jesus' wisdom. This contrasts with the angry, hard hearts of the religious teachers asking the previous questions. This question was not designed to trap him, but to hear him on a point of common discussion among the religious teachers of that day. Jesus recognizes this because at the end of the discussion, he says that the man is not far from the kingdom. The man asks, what is the greatest commandment? This question was one that was commonly debated by the rabbis at this time. There were 613 laws identified by the teachers of the law. 365 negative, which is interestingly one for every day of the year, and 248 positive. That's a lot of commands. According to Wessel, writing for the Bible Expositor's Commentary, attempts were made to differentiate between heavy and light commands. The rabbis tried to develop great principles from which the rest of the law could be understood. One rabbi, Hillel, when asked about this, said, What you hate for yourself, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. That sounds very much to me like the do unto others rule that we've all heard, but it is a works righteousness understanding of the law and focuses primarily on our interactions with those around us and not God himself. So what did Jesus say? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, central to the Shema that was repeated morning and evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus adds mind when he quotes Deuteronomy, perhaps to more completely describe all of a person. The person must love God with his entire being, all that makes him up. Jesus goes on to give the second greatest, love your neighbor as yourself. In this, he summarizes the last six of the Ten Commandments. The scribe agrees with Jesus and adds that this kind of obedience is worth more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, 1 Samuel 15, 22. Obedience from a heart of love to God and neighbor is better than the giving of all the things I have to meet a requirement. 
This sounds like a similar idea to that found in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. All the pious acts which are done are of no use if they are not motivated by love for our Savior. Obedience to God's law needs to come from a heart of love for God that flows out into loving my neighbor. According to Keller, this man is coming to recognize what an impossible standard this is, and the more he sees this, the closer he is to understanding the gospel. Jesus certainly challenges the idea that working hard to keep the 613 laws is the way to approach God. Apart from the motivation of love for God, these acts are worthless. Given this standard, which one of us would be able to stand before God on our own merit? We all fall woefully short. In fact, the only one who was completely able to fulfill the law as expressed this way was Jesus himself. In a few short days, as pointed out by Donald English, Jesus will complete his task and become the final offering for sin. He will have completely fulfilled the law by being obedient to his Father in going to the cross and in loving us by taking upon himself your sin and mine in order to free us from the penalty and power of sin. At the conclusion of their conversation, Jesus declared that this man was not far from the kingdom. He is coming to understand that what God desires is total commitment and love for God. After this, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Were they convicted by Jesus' answer? His answer puts petty questions and disputes into their proper place. What does this man still lack in his understanding? Perhaps Jesus is addressing this in the next section. It reminds me of the segment we use in Sunday school, questions from kids. Kids have sent questions in to Pastor Brian, and he answers them biblically in a way they can understand. At the end of every segment, he says, now I have a question back for you. And he asks them a question to help them think more deeply about his response and in what way they can apply this to themselves. So Jesus now has a question for those students of scripture, likely including this scribe. It is a question designed to help them move toward who he truly is. Jesus uses a question about scripture, a scripture that these teachers would have knowledge of. The question is, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He was addressing a popular expectation that the Messiah would be the king of a restored nation. He continues by referencing Psalm 110, widely regarded as a messianic psalm, authored by David under the inspiration of God. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now this verse can be a challenge to understand because the same English word is used 
for two different ideas. The first Lord, in all caps, is the English rendering of Yahweh, God's proper name. And the second lower is lowercase Lord, meaning a ruler or king, and was commonly understood to refer to the Messiah. I read a devotionally commentary on this from Encounter with God that better explains this than I could, and I'd like to read it to you. While Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, he presents to his listeners a conundrum. How can the Messiah be King David's son, but also his Lord? How can the Messiah be beneath King David in ancestry, but above him in authority? There is a solution to this conundrum, of course, but not one that the teachers of the law or others have yet to discern. The solution lies in Jesus, and it incorporates the mysteries and marvels of who he really is. Just days later, he will refuse to deny the claim that he is the Messiah, the Christ, Mark 14, 61 and 62. Later, he will testify of himself, I, Jesus, am the root and the offspring of David, Revelation twenty two sixteen. How can Jesus claim to be both Lord and Son, root and offspring of David? The answer? His unique status as both God and man. As man, born of human flesh, Jesus is the direct descendant of David, the son of David. Matthew 1, 1-16. But as the Son of God... He is creator of all, supreme over all, and Lord over all, Colossians 1, 15 to 17, including King David. This unique nature of Jesus enables him to be a far greater Messiah than what the teachers of the law were anticipating. For he did not come to be the warrior Messiah, a mere man purporting to save Israel from the grip of Rome. He came to be the wounded Messiah, the God-man, who alone could die in our place and save us from the grip of sin. By posing this question, Jesus was opening the door to the fact that he is the unique Son of God as being scriptural. In the next short section, Mark gives a synopsis of what Matthew 23 says in an entire chapter the woes of the Pharisees. Jesus is talking here about the majority, but not all, of the Pharisees and scribes. The most powerful had developed a hatred and envy of Jesus because he exposed their proud, selfish hearts. They loved to be seen in the temple and marketplaces and admired by others. They loved being thought of as godly, and made a show of their fasting and tithing and long prayers. But Jesus says they do the opposite of what God's heart would do. God's heart has compassion for the poor, the physically broken, and the marginalized. Instead of assisting struggling widows, they use their power to further impoverish them. They pretend to love God, but the reality of their lives shows that they don't. Since they don't truly love God but look for their own benefit, 
They don't truly love their neighbors either. Jesus says they will be severely judged for their hypocrisy. By God's grace, may we not fall into the trap of serving to be seen and admired rather than out of love for our Savior. May our service to Jesus be an acceptable expression of our love for him, whether seen or unseen by others. Contrast the Pharisees' hearts and motives with what Jesus sees and points out to his disciples as he observes people putting their offerings into the box as he sat opposite the treasury. According to Alistair Begg, there were 13 boxes around the temple for giving offerings. At the tops of the boxes were metal trumpets that would make sounds as the coins were being dropped in. So a large gift would make a louder sound and would be noticed by others. A small gift would not create much of a sound at all. The disciples were likely noticing that meant the many wealthy who were putting in large amounts But Jesus directs the disciples' attention to something they would probably not have noticed. There was a poor widow who put in two small copper coins worth about a penny. And I just actually happened to have two little coins that would have been pretty equivalent. These are today's coins, but they would have been pretty equivalent. Can't see them one behind the other. uh, To what this widow would have put in. From where you're sitting, you can probably barely see them. (laughs) They're so tiny, and they're not worth very much. I wonder what she was thinking. Could she have been thinking that what she was about to do made no sense, that it wouldn't make a difference to give this small amount, that she needed it for herself? Surely, her gift must be inconsequential. What difference would it make? But she gave anyway out of her love for God. Jesus then surprises them by saying that she has put in more than all the others because they gave from their abundance, but she gave all she had to live on. What Jesus was saying was that it was not the amount of the gift that mattered, but the heart of the giver. She was motivated by her love for God and obedience to him as she gave. As Sinclair Ferguson points out, God was also able to take that gift and multiply it beyond its value. Perhaps she recalled the story of the widow of Zarephath, who in obedience to the word of the Lord through Elijah, used the last of her resources to provide him with food. She believed this word when Elijah told her that she would not run out of food during the famine. The poor widow in our text gave sacrificially because of her love for God, and Jesus commends her. She gave what she couldn't afford. She gave it all. What a beautiful illustration of the generous heart that Jesus commends, a heart willing to give everything to Jesus. Contrast this with the dutiful hearts of the Pharisees who gave the required tithes and offerings, hoping perhaps to be seen as generous, and to be praised for their contributions. Here, allow me to share a little bit from my own experience. Uh, There was a time in my life many years ago 
when I was in a similar position to the widow. Life had changed radically for me, and I was on my own with four children still living at home. I remember the first time I put a small check into the offering plate. I was filled with joy at being able to worship by giving a portion of what the Lord had given to me. It was not something I could afford. I couldn't even pay my bills with my income. I wondered if this was a wise decision, but I believed that God was directing me to give, and I wanted to do that. I know that there were some who probably thought that this was a foolish decision, but I believe that the Holy Spirit was directing me. And I discussed this with another mature Christian who supported my decision. God was faithful to me as I continued to give. During the four years that I was struggling financially, never once did God fail to provide for my family and me. I was never even late with any payment. God was incredibly faithful to me. If this is your situation, God can use the little you are able to give and multiply it in its impact more than you could imagine. And he is fully able to meet your needs at the same time. Now I am in a very different situation, God having blessed me beyond what I could have imagined. I find myself asking sometimes, am I giving as joyfully as I did then, rejoicing and participating in God's work in this way? Am I listening to the Holy Spirit when I see a need and he prompts me to give? I find myself at times in the same situation as the disciples who saw Jesus provide for the physical needs of the crowd as he fed the 5,000, but then had the same doubts when faced with a similar situation when Jesus fed the 4,000. How slow I am to understand at times. In whatever financial situation we find ourselves, God has ordained this to use in our lives and the lives of others. If you are in the place of abundance, I encourage you to read Jim Petty's book, Act of Grace, The Power of Generosity to Change Your Life, the Church, and the World. I think you will find it a helpful biblical approach to giving and being part of God's kingdom work with the resources he has given you. Finally, let me read the pattern for giving that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5. Here he is encouraging the church to give based on the model of the more impoverished believers in Macedonia, who gave not just their money, but their very selves to the Lord for kingdom work. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for Jesus and for the love that he showed to us.
as he went to the cross in obedience to you. We thank you for who he is. We thank you for all of the many blessings that we have as a result of his death on our behalf. And we thank you for this example of the widow also. And we pray that you would help us to um, just open our hearts and open our hands and be generous in the giving of our time and our resources to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.